0: Welcome to another episode of HeartStock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. In just a moment, our guest this week will be with us, Nicole Rawling, and she is the co-founder and the chief executive of Material Innovation Initiative. And I'd always like to remind everyone listening that you can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, whether you'd like to be a guest Or you're in the audience and have questions for us. In just a moment, we will be right back with Nicole and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock. Hello and welcome back. This is HeartStock Radio. I am your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. This week's guest, we have Nicole Rawling. Hi, Nicole. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And where are you speaking with us from? And what's the weather like there? I am
1: in the San Francisco Bay Area, and honestly, the weather could not be more nice. It's yeah. it's probably low 80s, um, just beautiful. Yes, we're having
0: one of those days here the whole weekend, just an absolutely beautiful fall day here in Montana, and colors are changing rapidly, a little frosty in the morning and warm during the day, just loving our weather, and I wanted to um, start out with a little introduction, what is the Material Innovation Initiative and what is it that you do there?
1: So, the Material Innovation Initiative, or as we call it MII for short, is a nonprofit organization supporting the development of next gen materials for the fashion and home goods industry. And what we mean by next-gen materials are materials that are more sustainable than the current materials on the market and do not use animals. Mm -hmm.
0: Tell us a little bit about why this is so important. What is your why and what is it that's motivating you to dedicate your life to
1: this? So I think it's really two things. Um, Number one, I am a mom. I have two young boys. And like I think most of us, we want to make sure that the world is a better place for our children. And I'm an attorney. I've been involved in environmental issues for about 15 years and also animal cruelty issues. And the materials that we currently use mostly in, in the fashion industry are really harmful, not only to the environment, but they do harm animals. And I was really motivated to try and do something to make a more positive impact on the world. And I thought this, this would be a really good way to do it. And when, three years ago when we got started, nobody else was doing it.
0: And it's getting to be a a more crowded field. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that more. But I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, where you grew up and at what point in life did you realize this was going to be your mission
1: and your calling? So honestly, I'm one of those people where I don't know where I'm from. I've moved around quite a bit. I was born in Seattle, Washington. I spent quite a bit of time in Massachusetts. I actually lived in Munich, Germany for four years in in middle school. And then I went to school in Washington, D.C., lived in New York, Chicago, North Carolina, and then the San Francisco Bay Area. So I've been around a lot, which I also think gives me a really good perspective on how, you know. People live and and different cultures. And I actually went vegetarian when I was around seven years old. I found out that we were actually eating animals. My mom told me we're having like hamburgers for dinner. I was like, well, what's hamburgers? She's like, it's it's beef. I was like, well, what's beef? She's like, it's cow. And I absolutely flipped out. And, you know, most kids. You know, I see so many books on animals. And I feel so close to animals, and luckily, my mom was supportive enough to allow me to to change my diet, and she actually changed it with me. And I think that was the the real beginning to think about and really question what part of society that we just take for granted as normal, you know, isn't maybe right. What could we do to be kinder to the planet and, you know, other species sharing it with us.
0: Mm-hmm. I would imagine there's a story behind the traveling and, and living in so many different places growing up. Was there like a profession that your mom or your dad was involved mm-hmm. with that required them to move
1: around? No. Well, they they both had very international careers. My dad was British, so he took some jobs that required him to travel quite a bit internationally. And then my mom was actually an international flight attendant before I was born. So I think they both really loved learning about other cultures and how other people live. And that's actually, I ended up going into international affairs. That's what I studied in undergrad because I wanted to learn the same thing. It's it's just amazing how similar humans are, but how different are our cultures are
0: Mm -hmm. the the way norms and values vary from place to place even Mm -hmm. though we have that common thread I find it fascinating also what were some of the more interesting things or maybe um, things that might have set you back a little bit in all of the different places that you've lived
1: yeah I think um, middle school is a very I think influential time actually my oldest is in middle school now so I can see it from his perspective too that's when I was in Munich and I was actually at an international school with, I think, people from 28 different countries, something Mm -hmm. like that. And I'd always lived in the United States before that. To me, that was a huge opportunity to see what, again, how different we are and how, honestly, there's no one right way as well. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people I've had experience with who haven't had that international experience, you don't quite understand that. And even if you live in one place for a long time, that can be, you know, really eye-opening experience or perspective. But then one of, one of the challenges uh, was actually coming back to the United States. The, the curriculum there wasn't as strong as it was when I came back. And so I was actually kind of farther behind, especially in English and some other typical American subjects. So I had to spend some time catching up there, but then I gained that international perspective.
0: And I'm just, I'm really curious about becoming a vegetarian as a youngster. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think there's some misunderstanding about, you know, did you get the right nutrients? And is it possible for a child or a family even to live a, a healthy lifestyle as a vegeta- vegetarian?
1: Yeah, I we did hear that a lot when I was growing up. And then even now, both of my children are plant-based. they're They're vegan. And I had a vegan pregnancy and... They're 10 and 12 and extremely healthy and actually pretty smart. I think there are some worries around there. I think all parents, I mean, there's so much conflicting information. All of us just want to do our best for our kids. And I've, there's been a number of times I've been worried about it. But I think as long as this is what I also hear from you know the pediatricians and the other research I've done. As long as you're on a generally plant based whole food diet, then you're healthy. Right. So you have to make sure that you're getting you know, and, and whole foods means right. You should be eating you know lots of vegetables and grains. It means not a lot of processed foods, and as we generally just make sure we have you know good amount of protein per day, and they eat a ton of vegetables and and fruit and grains. So I've actually had doctors told me that my blood was like the best blood they'd ever seen, and we really don't don't pay a lot of attention besides focusing on the whole foods plant based diet.
0: So you also mentioned, uh, you know, coming back to the United States after middle school. And what kind of culture shocks did you have at that point? And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, educational experiences, your educational experiences, what they were like from that point forward. And then I know uh, you mentioned international studies, but then what made you decide to go to law school?
1: yeah I mean, it was it was definitely a challenge in the beginning. I was in like private school in Massachusetts, and like my classmates were really hard workers and and very, very smart and were I do think there's problems now with the amount of stress we put on kids um and the amount we push them to succeed i I was seeing that with a lot of them. I was behind, but I also saw a lot of value in that real world experience and that those perspectives and that willingness to also, you know, be a critical thinker, like challenge existing norms. And so I ended up, I went to a high school that allowed me to do that. And I felt like I really was able to to thrive there. And then I ended up wanting to do more of the international work, and I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service, which is um, you know really good school for doing the international politics. And I I really enjoyed it having so many students from different areas of the world and have those experiences and brought them into the classroom was was really valuable. I do still think there's part missing with again, the real world experience. And there's a lot that you can learn that's, that's not just in a textbook. So I think our, our educational system needs to focus more on that. But I also think challenges are what make us strong. I've, you know, quite a few life challenges and it brought me to where I am today. If it was all pretty easy, I think my life would be pretty boring.
0: At what point did you decide or know that you wanted to go to
1: law school? Yeah. Well, actually, this is more of a personal story. I did end up marrying my high school sweetheart. We are since divorced, but he didn't really want to live outside the United States so that I had to do a little bit of a career switch then and figure out what I could do that I was really passionate about that would allow me to stay in the country. And law school seemed to make a lot of sense to me. I thought it was a great way to challenge injustices so I ended up working as a paralegal for a few years to kind of test it out because law school's hard and expensive and takes a long time. And I did. I loved it. So I ended up writing my law school essays and wanting to use my law degree to help animals. And I thought it would actually be a good way to sort of weed out some schools who didn't support me because that was a you know, pretty unique area of concentration at the time. I don't know if any school at the time had an animal law program. But that's what I did and ended up going to Northwestern in Chicago and loved it. Mm -hmm. Any mentors
0: or folks that really made an impact on your career path and choices? Honestly, the biggest mentor I've ever had is my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that and, you know, how she influenced you? And, you know, it's just mind boggling to me That you decided you wanted to be vegetarian. Your mom went, yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Not a response. I mean, it's a great response. I appreciate it greatly, but it's not a response that I think
1: a lot of moms would have had. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, I give her tons of credit for that. I think she, well, she's told me since, I don't really remember, it was when I was seven, but she told me she felt odd about it too. And so it was kind of a pushing or that point that made her think, okay, yeah, let's do this. Um I also hear from her that I wasn't the easiest child, so I don't, I don't know if she, I would have accepted if she said no. According to her, I was actually born an attorney and and pretty argumentative even mm-hmm. at that age. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think she just had so much life experience before she had me, being able to you know again travel the world as right a woman in you know the 60s and 70s. That was not common. Mm-hmm. And she went to countries all over, which, you know, even even now are are fairly dangerous for women. And her bravery and I think trust in humans was really incredible. And yeah, I think her willingness to to question things and then, you know, support me in what I wanted to do and know that everybody has their own path. I think as humans, we're much too judgmental of others. I think we really need to support people in in what they want to do and what brings them passion. And if we're all a little bit less judgmental of others, I think, and we could all be our authentic selves, I think the world would be a really much happier place. Mm -hmm. Indeedy.
0: We are at that point where we're going to take uh, a little break here and we will be right back and talk a little bit more about material innovation initiative we'll be right back with nicole this is hard stock welcome back this is Hardstock radio I'm your host Carol Murphy and we were just speaking with Nicole Rollins and she is the co-founder and chief executive officer at material Innovation initiative so let's dig into your nonprofit what is the overreaching mission of your organization and more than nuts and bolts of how you bring about change in the materials
1: world. Yeah, I think it's best really to start with things as a consumer perspective. I generally believe that people want to do good and they want to make the right choices. And most of us now are aware that at least some of our behaviors of purchasing the products we purchase aren't great for the environment and we probably have to do something about it. But it's hard, right I, I am a single mom I am running a company and I want to do good and I'm in it and I still don't understand everything that I should be doing. And so what our theory of change is is that if consumers are able to purchase materials right so whatever's on your clothes or you have know, things you buy in your home like your rugs and couches, and then cars, like a lot of the materials in your cars, like the leather, or the wall. If those items were at price parity, so about, you know, the same choice as what's currently on the market, they are same quality and same aesthetics, right? So consumers really shouldn't have to sacrifice and they're readily available, right? Where you normally go to purchase whatever it is and then they're also better for the environment and they're better for animals, that people will buy them. Um, People aren't buying these materials because they want to have a negative effect. It's just because it's the only thing on the market. And so our entire organization is focused on trying to bring those products to market so consumers can make those better decisions. And so we work with scientists to help get more um, research into areas where we think these products need to be improved. We work with entrepreneurs to get them into the space to create new companies. We work with investors because obviously none of this can be done without the money. We need some more investors in the space. And then we work with the material companies who exist to help them and do what what we can to make it easier for them to get their products to market. And then finally, we do work with fashion, automotive and home goods brands, the the big companies, to help them understand what this market is, the advantages of these next gen materials, and help to match them up and make connections to the companies who are making the products. And
0: oftentimes, this is kind of the conundrum so many vegan options or non-plant based options are synthetic. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the role that synthetics play in your research? Should we all just stop purchasing anything that's synthetic? You know, this is you mentioned it earlier. It's like, what do we do? It's it's yeah. challenging as a consumer.
1: It, it really is. like for, for anybody out there who's worried about it, and wondering what they can do, it is hard. It really is. The hard thing is synthetics are also extremely bad for the environment. And so synthetics are generally made from petrochemicals. So think fossil fuels. And I think we all generally know too, we need to be moving away from sources that use those petrochemicals. And so when we talk synthetics, to use common terminology, it's things like polyester, right? Acrylic, nylon. Synthetics actually make up the majority of the volume of materials used in the fashion industry. So I've heard statistics between 60 and 70%. And so it really is large. And the problem with like a lot of these synthetics are alternatives to animal-based material. Right, polyester could be seen as alternative to silk. Acrylic can be seen as alternative wool. Like PU or pleather can be is an alternative to leather. They not only do they use petrochemicals, but they also emit microplastics or microfibers into the environment. And there's been a lot of studies recently showing that. Really, there's microplastics in everything. Um, It's almost impossible to get away from them. And it's really affecting all species on the planet, aquatic life, land animals, and humans. I've read studies, too, saying it's even worse when you consume aquatic life. So a lot of the microplastics get into the waterways and then the the small animals will eat them. And then it goes up the food chain and continuously accumulates in greater percentages in say like fish. And then humans will eat that, which also causes problems for humans. So it's it's not a pretty picture.
0: Uh So are you inundated with opportunities and folks knocking on your door wanting assistance and partnership in developing because I feel like this is I guess relatively new but I I see more and more demand from the consumer side and from the production and fashion side you know all manufacturing levels and angles how do you decide who you work
1: with if (laughs) if this is the case Yeah, no, it's actually, it's funny because that's our consistent problem is that there's too many opportunities. Um, We end up spending a lot of time trying to prioritize what would be the most effective and where our work is really needed. Because as a a nonprofit, so we are about 94% funded by philanthropy. So donors who care about the environment and animals and see Sort of changing the marketplace is the best way to do that rather than really just telling people what to do. So it is quite a struggle right now. One of the most exciting opportunities is a policy program. So there's a number of policies that are actually hurting the entire next-gen materials industry, for example, labeling. So in a few countries like Italy and Portugal, you cannot label like one of these alternatives using the common term for animals. So if even something like an alternative leather Or, you know, like pleather is using leather in there. Um, You can't use those terms. And so even things like a vegan leather, they won't let you use. And that can hurt the industry. And consumers aren't confused, right? When you see vegan leather, you know that that's not an animal. And then two tariffs in the United States, specifically the duty, right, or like the taxes that we put on products coming into the United States is significantly higher if it's not one of these animal-based materials. And that really puts the market at a disadvantage. And so that's the type of work that we can do that really helps the entire industry. So we're we're looking to hire a policy person hopefully next year. And are any of your partners
0: actually making these products in the U.S.? I know that there's a company in Illinois, uh, that's the only one that I know of that's making a truly plant-based alternative.
1: There is. I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about natural fiber welding. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in Prioria, Illinois, and yes, they they are manufacturing the. It's a what we're calling the next gen leather that they are marketing as 100 percent plastic free, and it is on the market. They just announced a number of partnerships recently with fashion brands. And so that's that's such a great first step because a lot of these companies are in the R&D stage and not on the market, but natural fiber welding and their Mirum material is on the market and you can actually go out and and buy some of their products now.
0: And how does your system work? If I'm an innovator and I've got, you know, something that I created in my kitchen at home And I really think I want to bring it to the market and I come and see you. What is your process like from there? Yeah. So
1: it really depends on what you need. So first, you know, we will sort of talk to you to make sure you're legitimate, right? We can't just help everybody who has an idea. But then if you really do have a a great product and the skill set that's needed, we can do anything from helping you develop a business plan right? To, we have a fashion designer on staff who will look at your material and give you some advice. So she has decades in the fashion industry. She can say, look, this is really great in these areas, but needs more work in these other areas. We can connect you to investors or we have a material scientist on the team who could talk to you about what your process is and if there's any knowledge we have that can help you improve on that process. Um, We do have lists of, we call them component suppliers, but these materials require inputs, right? So one of the issues is, let's take the leather, for example. It does need usually a coating. Um, So not all companies do, but most do. We can help you find more sustainable coatings we can do that and then we can also connect you to brands so we do work with a lot of the fashion brands and we're happy to make those introductions.
0: Mm-hmm. And we have maybe about 2 minutes left. I'm hoping you can share what might be on the horizon coming up for your organization. What what do you anticipate?
1: Yeah, actually a project we're working on now that's really exciting is called our environmental data coalition. We are Basically, a bunch of scientists and lawyers, um, and we love data, and we like nerd out on all the all that information. And we need better data in the industry comparing the environmental impact of different materials. And so we're doing a coalition with the industry to help come together and agree on some parameters.
0: Hmm. Is their labeling included in that. And also, uh, before we run out of time, I want to squeeze in this last question, of course. We need to hopefully share with listeners how they might find you. Uh,
1: Yes, so your first question, labeling is is always going to be an issue, I think. And then, yeah, I would love for people to come to our website and learn about us. It's materialinnovation.org. Um, And actually, we're putting up a brand new website um, probably mid-October. Oh, a new website. That's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully with a lot of facts and hopefully answering a lot of the, you know, consumers and industries questions.
0: Fantastic. So really appreciate you sharing your story, Nicole, and the work that you're doing. Uh, Appreciate you both doing it and sharing it with our listeners. And... um, Thank you so much.
1: No, Carol, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for what you do for the planet, too. Getting these stories out is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. My cup is full every time I do this. I feel so lucky and I I'm kind of speechless as you can tell, but really, I feel very fortunate. Thank you. Yeah,
1: no, thank you so much.
0: Mm-hmm. As always, we will be back again next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is Heartstock. Peace. It's a- no trespassing
1: but on a... Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.